You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, if you live in the United States and you are in your late 20s or older, there's a pretty good chance that you had to square dance in gym class. But why? Well, the reasons are darker than you think. Last night was the Super Bowl. And aside from the game featuring different teams than it did last year, it also had one other major difference. Baseball Hall of Famer Leo DeRocher once said, There are only five things you can do in baseball. Run, throw, catch, hit, and hit with power. But clearly, DeRocher never played for the Savannah Bananas. Lippy! (laughs) That was his nickname, Lippy. I mean... Did anyone really call him that? All <laughs> of that on this edition of Commute. Let's go. Jay, we got to acknowledge it before we get going. A hundred episodes. I know. Can Did you believe you it? Did you ever think? We're the wow. little show that could. Shoo! Pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> Thank you to all of you that have been around uh, listening, whether it's from episode one or episode 99, whatever it is. We're pumped to have you around, and uh, hey, let's do 100 more. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, we make this show because we genuinely just like to make it every week. We think it's fun, and we enjoy it, and the mission is still the same. It's to keep you in the loop of things that we think are interesting that you can talk about and learn about on your way to work. And I thought the mission was get paid. <laughs> well, that comes later. We don't, we don't, you don't tell anyone that. It's like the secret mission. All right. Well, Dave, uh, I'm kind of wondering, you know, you're from a, we're both from the same state. We're both from West Virginia, but we're from different regions in West Virginia. So I'm wondering, did you do what I did in gym class growing up? And did you have to take square dancing? I don't think we did, but we did do the electric slide. (laughs) That's not, that does not count. So I've got a lot of memories. Uh, Fourth grade to sixth grade, we definitely did the electric slide. The electric slide Uh, does not have a fiddle. So it does not count. It could. <laughs> Depends where you're from. Well, we did uh, where I grew up. I distinctly remember it. I remember having to put on the show after we had learned how to square dance for like several weeks and all the parents came and we had to wear like flannel shirts and tuck them into jeans and stuff. It was a whole thing. And if you live in the United States, there's a pretty good chance that you or at least someone you know, like me, had to take square dancing in gym class. But the reason for this strange relationship with square dancing actually goes back pretty far. And in fact, Dave, 28 of 50 U.S. states have declared square dancing their official dance. But the roots of this isn't just about the joy of the dance. The origins are a little more sinister than that. Now, to understand square dancing, you have to go back to the man who drove most of the movement towards its embrace, Henry Ford. And while you probably know Ford because of his car production company, Ford Motor Vehicles, what you may not know is that Henry Ford also hated jazz. Now, Ford's hatred of jazz was not just simply because it wasn't his style. 
Ford believed that jazz was a nefarious plot of the Jewish people to corrupt the masses and take over the world. It is absolutely not a secret of history that Henry Ford had deeply held anti-Semitic beliefs, and his singling out of jazz specifically is only one of many examples of this. In 1921, Ford said this, Many people have wondered whence comes the waves upon waves of musical slush that invade decent homes and set the young people of this generation imitating the drivel of morons. Popular music is a Jewish monopoly. Jazz is a Jewish creation. The mush, slush, the sly suggestion, the abandoned sensuousness of sliding notes are of Jewish origin. In fact, Dave, Adolf Hitler greatly admired Ford. I mean, he even got a shout-out in Hitler. <laughs> That's all you got to say. <laughs> he even got a personalized right shout-out in Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf. But ultimately, jazz, which, by the way, was really invented and popularized by African Americans, was taking the nation over in the 1920s, much to the chagrin of Ford. But Americans, at least Ford believed, would abandon jazz for a traditional alternative if given the option. If jazz was leading to our ruin, music and dance could also be the cure. Ford, in turn, poured an absurd amount of money into square dancing and country music. According to courts, Ford required his employees to attend square dancing events. He funded fiddling contests and radio shows that promoted old-time music and created square dancing clubs across the United States. It was within this movement that the push to bring square dancing to the American school system, believing that it would teach children, and I quote, social training, courtesy, good citizenship, and rhythm. By 1928, almost half the schools in the country were teaching square dancing to students. Although Ford did spark a temporary interest in square dancing, the practice did slowly die out through the late 1920s while jazz continued to be all the rage. But the movement did not die with it. In the 1930s, another square dancing obsessed man, Lloyd Shaw, a Colorado school superintendent, revived the tradition and resuscitated Ford's quest to spread square dancing to schools across America. Clubs dedicated to square dancing popped up across the country throughout the coming decades, and from 1973 to 2003, there were actually over 30 bills proposed to make square dancing the official folk dance of the United States. One of these bills, sponsored by the late West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd, actually passed the House and the Senate and then was signed by then-President Reagan, declaring square dancing as the national folk dance of the United States from 1982 to 1993. Local square dancing enthusiasts pushed states across the country to adopt this position, and many did, which is why you may have been square dancing as a young American student like I was. Robin Penichia put it for courts, which I think says it best, there is nothing inherently wrong with square dancing, but there is something sinister about declaring it to be more valuable than other forms of dance. Eric Zorn in 1990 wrote this for the Chicago Tribune. Legislatively recognizing one folk dance form or any art form and placing it above all others is wrong because it denies the diversity of cultural, ethnic, and social traditions in America, which I guess on some level was the original goal, stated or not, of Henry Ford in the first place. I mean, if Ford didn't espouse the very problematic things he did, and if he didn't believe that jazz would lead our society to ruin, we probably wouldn't have had to square dance in gym class. So it's safe to say he wasn't a great guy. <laughs> I think that's fair. You know, um, he, but he did. <laughs> he did, apparently. 
according to the internet anyway. Which which never published lies. an anti-smoking book. So he wrote an anti-smoking book in 1914 called The Case Against the Little White Slaver. So he was ahead of his time in thinking that smoking might be somewhat So dangerous. you're trying to add some things to the other side of the scale for Henry Ford and just see how it all balances well, out. Not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I think Friend of Hitler puts him really heavily on one side. It's hard to balance out that sense <laughs> Jay, what is something in your life that just didn't age well? Like, for example, you and I love this one Instagram account called Freezing Cold Takes, (laughs) which is a play on sports hot takes, obviously, and it'll share tweets or posts that have not aged well. Like, uh, an example would be LeBron James just recently became the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. And that account will share some posts from like 2007, 2008, where sports journalists said things like, LeBron James is good, but he isn't great. He won't amount to much. Stuff like that. Stuff in hindsight just doesn't look good. Yeah, it's that, that account is fantastic. But something that didn't age well, I mean, I don't think any of our appearances in high school age well, but mine was sort of, uh, you know, I, I embraced the long hair in high school. And uh, I'm going to be honest, it didn't look great. Uh, it does not look great in hindsight. At the time, I thought it looked cool. Well, what's funny about that is your hair is long now. It is. So So are you going to have a hindsight moment on yourself? Well, that's uh, TBD. That's TBD. Well, <laughs> funny enough, mine's also hair. So for me, it's definitely this one picture that is still somewhere in my parents' house, I think, uh, that just happened to be taken the one time in my life that I decided to get a haircut called a flat top. <laughs> so, so think about a hairstyle that more resembles a small shelf for books than a haircut. That's what a flat top is. Yeah, you could have balanced. Uh, you could have balanced a lot on that thing. Well, Jay, in honor of yesterday's Super Bowl, today we're going to discuss something else that didn't age particularly well. The 2022, so last year's, not this year's, edition of the Super Bowl commercials. As we've discussed before on the show, almost as important as the actual game, if not more, is the annual unpacking of the Super Bowl commercials. Watched by nearly 100 million people each year, Super Bowl ad revenue comes in like clockwork each season at just south of $600 million, with the average cost of a 30-second Super Bowl commercial for national audiences coming in at around $6.5 million, brands spend all year planning and executing what they think will be the perfect commercial to drive new interest and revenue. But Jay, while brands often miss the mark and their commercials don't really move the needle, it's rare that an entire industry flops. And so that's why the 2022 version of the commercials, to borrow a phrase from Vox, aged like spoiled milk. If you watched last night, you probably didn't see much of anything around the topics of cryptocurrency or NFTs, and outside of maybe one or two, not much about an eventual life inside what's called the metaverse. That was definitely not the case, though, in 2022. The big splashy Super Bowl ads of 2022 are almost laughable in retrospect, writes Sarah Morrison, a reporter at Vox. That is, unless you're one of the celebrities now facing a lawsuit for promoting crypto exchanges. 
or one of the millions of people who lost money on crypto investments, thanks at least in part to the large-scale fraud that permeated the industry, or any of the thousands of tech workers who were laid off in the past few months. While there were no cryptocurrency-specific ads last night, and quick side note, four crypto companies, believe it or not, all bowed out in recent weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. They thought about it. They thought about it. While there were no cryptocurrency-specific ads once again last night, last year there were so many that some people even called it the Crypto Bowl instead of the Super Bowl. The company CoinCase, for example, famously spent a reported $14 million for a one-minute-long ad that just featured a bouncing QR code. FTX, the former company of now-disgraced crypto leader Sam Bankman-Fried, ran an ad featuring Seinfeld creator and legendary curmudgeon Larry David. And who could forget, Jay, our personal favorite commercial to make fun of, the Crypto.com spot featuring Matt Damon saying, say it with me now, Fortune favors, favors the, the bold. Brave. Oh, is it's it brave, brave or, bold? or bold? I don't know. And one of the two, Fortune brave, favor. bold, whatever. It is Fortune brave. Fortune favors right. you. It's brave. Fortune favors you, though, <laughs> if you get some, some cryptocurrency. Jay, since then, crypto has, well, kind of crashed. Coinbase laid off 20% of its workforce twice. Larry David (laughs) got sued. Bitcoin has fallen down almost 50% from where it was just a year ago. And that hilarious Matt Damon spot? Well, somehow it's all but been wiped from the internet. You can't even watch it on YouTube. They somehow got it (laughs) off of YouTube. But Jay, crypto is hardly the only victim of negative hindsight. Amazon spent the most of any company in 2022, almost $40 million on ads, and has since laid off thousands of employees. Meta, the company that used to just be called Facebook, has seen its stock price plummet. And Ticketmaster, a company we recently covered through its fumbling of the Taylor Swift concert ticket woes, was offering digital NFT tokens all throughout the 2022 game. So what does this all mean? Well, it means as we move forward into an increasingly tech-heavy world, it's harder than ever to predict what will work and what won't. Something that was heavily advertised last night, though? AI technologies. And while I don't think that'll be going the way of crypto anytime soon, I still have my reservations on what it means. Jay, as I've said before on this show, I don't want AI doing anything of any consequence for me until we can figure out how to make Bluetooth work consistently. Well, Matt Damon is a menace because that commercial made it seem like crypto was the coolest thing on the planet. And then everybody just lost all of their money because of it. And I watched a clip yesterday of Jimmy Fallon, and he was with Paris Hilton. And this was from like a year ago, and they were both showing off the NFTs that they had bought. And it was like just so ridiculous to watch in hindsight because it just feels so lifeless and dead and like void of any momentum (laughs) whatsoever. They're trying so hard to make it sound cool. Like, hey, all you people that can barely pay your rent, you should buy a (laughs) fake piece of art. That's a great idea. No, no, no. Let me explain it to you, okay? Let me explain it to you. Like, if you take a picture of my house, you don't own the house. Like, I own the house. But you own the picture. Isn't that cool? (laughs) 
So Dave, in our last segment of our 100th episode, we are going to be talking about a subject near and dear to your heart. We're going to be talking about baseball, but specifically, we're going to be talking about a team, a minor league team called the Savannah Bananas, which I know that you are familiar with. Oh man, when you told me you were going to do a, I mean, I I got goosebumps when you told me you were going to do a segment (laughs) on the Savannah Bananas because I love the Savannah Bananas. The guy who owns the team, and I'll let you get into the ins and outs of what makes them unique, Jesse Cole, he wrote a book called Find Your Yellow Tux. I I have it on my desk at work. It guides really a lot of my life, (laughs) my my personal (laughs) and professional life. I buy in 100% to what that guy's selling. And you worked in minor league baseball for a little bit too, so you you have a connection there to that world. And uh, today, like we said, we're talking about a minor league baseball team, but one that's making big waves in the world of sports, the Savannah Bananas. So the Savannah Bananas, it's a minor league baseball team based in Savannah, Georgia, that was founded in 2016. And uh, in recent years, they've quickly become one of the most entertaining and innovative teams in all of minor league baseball, from their unique name and logo to the creative promotions and fan experiences. The Bananas have set themselves apart from the rest of the pack. So the idea of the Savannah Bananas came from Jesse Cole, a former minor league baseball player and lifelong fan of the sport. After playing in the minor leagues for several years, Cole wanted to bring a new level of excitement and entertainment to the game and saw the opportunity to do so in Savannah. So in 2016, he founded the Savannah Bananas, and the rest, as they say, is history. The team is well, it's more than just a baseball team. They're a full-fledged entertainment experience. From their pregame concerts and themed nights to their unique promotions and interactive games, the Bananas are committed to providing a one-of-a-kind experience for fans of all ages. And it's not just the fans who are having a good time. The players and coaches have a blast, too, often getting involved in promotions and having fun with the fans. From batters and first base coaches who dance to tracks to team TikTok dances that get millions of views to players balancing on stilts or wielding fiery bats to players wearing kilts and doing backflips to the performances from a group of line dancing women all over the age of 65 dubbed the Banana Nanas. The games are just more than games. They're total spectacles. And the team doesn't just mess around. They have won the Coastal Plain League Championship three times. And in 2022, 11 of the team's players were drafted or signed to the major leagues. So the response to the Savannah Bananas, it's been pretty overwhelmingly positive. Fans have flocked to Grayson Stadium to experience the Bananas' unique brand of entertainment, and the team has become one of the most popular and well-loved minor league baseball teams in the country. It's not just the fans who are raving about the Bananas. Players and coaches from other teams have also expressed their admiration for the innovative and entertaining approach of the team. All 4,000 seats were regularly sold out at the historic Grayson Stadium in Savannah, Georgia, and over a million people have attended games at the ballpark in a time when attendance at Major League Baseball games has even been on the decline. The team was even the subject of a five-part docuseries on ESPN titled Banana Land. So all in all, the future looks bright for the team. With their innovative approach to the game, the Bananas have established themselves as a major player in the world of minor league baseball and have become the model for other teams to follow, which they are. And with their commitment to providing this unique and entertaining experience for fans, the Bananas are right now at least poised for continued success and growth in the years to come. But the naysayers, well, Dave, they do exist. 
There are people who criticize the bananas for tampering with the sacred formula for the game of baseball, those who accuse the team of making a mockery of the sport. But regardless of this, with 80,000 fans on the banana ball waiting list for ticket requests, I would say the success is much louder than the criticism, and I would expect the bananas here are the beginning of something rather than sort of being an outlier. If you read the book, Find Your Yellow Tux, which once again I, I really recommend that Jesse Cole, the owner of the bananas, wrote, he outlines how when he bought the team, so they were a, a team called the Savannah Sand Nats, I believe, before they became the Bananas, they were a failure. Nobody cared about the team. Nobody went to the games. They made no money. And he went all in on, I'm going to buy this team and I'm going to make it fun. And it worked out for him. But he, he, what looks like an incredible success now is the end result of this guy really grinding on an idea for a long time. Yeah, and it works at away games, too. We have a local minor league team a couple cities over from us called the Charleston Dirty Birds, and the Savannah Bananas are coming to play that team, and those tickets sold out like it's a lottery immediately. Yeah. It's actually it's it's a lottery like, to get yeah. tickets. Yeah. <laughs> So and that never happens. If you go to any Charleston Dirty Birds games, they're they're not packed out. You know, people like the team, but uh, to see that sudden shift, it just shows you that the power goes past Georgia. It, it goes all over the country. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week. Like you want to include both congratulations? Yeah, like what if I congratulated both teams? Because obviously we're recording this before the Super Bowl happens. So should I say, you know, like congratulations to the Chiefs and the Eagles? One of you won last night. Do you really want to congratulate the Eagles? No, I hate the Eagles. Yeah, you're a passionate, a known Eagles hater. Maybe I should just congratulate the Chiefs because I assume they will win because the Eagles are Awesome. See, I kind of think the Eagles are going to win. I think they're the better team. Okay, well, 100 episodes and we won't do any more. <laughs> we made it to 100 at least. <laughs>